Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Uh, before we begin, we want to put out a quick content warning on the topics we'll be discussing. Some of them are definitely triggering, and of course, it is all mature. So please keep that in mind as you enjoy today's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Emotional Duct Tape. I'm Corey. I'm Jamie. Um, and today's a special day because uh, we, in the past episodes, um, we've talked to a lot of new friends and people we, um, we've we met through this podcast. And today we're talking to somebody I know in real life who's a friend of mine. Um, please welcome to the podcast, Mary Beth Orr. Hi, Mary Beth. Hi. Hi, Mary Beth. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Corey. It's so good to have you on the podcast. Um and first off, because you're just a, a super fun personality. Um, no, no pressure at all. I'm setting a precedent. I shouldn't set a precedent for you. Yeah, yeah. But um, what's really unique about you is um, this podcast is about grief, and you actually had a really, a really crazy situation happen to you a few years ago. You were in a really bad accident, and we're going to talk about that today. So um, let's just let's get some backstory and let's start from there. Yeah. Uh... So May 5th, 2018, Cinco de Mayo has um, a really important significance for me now because I even have more of a reason to want to drink some tequila and celebrate vibrant um, culture. But I also call it my rebirth day because it was literally the day that um, my husband got the news that I might die. They didn't know if I was going to wake up. Um, so then this, uh, I was T-boned. Well, that's also a whole other thing, but we, we'll talk about that later in the whole grief thing. Um, uh, grief, grief, how grief and trauma tie in t- together. But um, yeah, I was T-boned and um, going through a stop sign on a rural road um, at like probably 55 miles per hour and um, broke my C6 and C7 vertebra. Uh, had a a lacerated liver and kidney, bleeding spleen, brain swelling, um, and the most significant, what is kind of sick being a musician, what the most significant part of all of this is though, is that I lost my tooth. You can probably see there's a scar right here. I bit completely through my lower lip. Um, Yeah, so I was unconscious for three days and because apparently I'm also um, a documented fighter, even completely, literally unconscious, I would zombie sit up in the bed. I was taking off um, the the cervical collar, and they had wow. to put me and I got out of those too. And I would not let them. I would not be still enough to do an MRI. Um, and it's probably because I was in a lot of pain. But you know, I have no memory of any of this. Um, so they couldn't tell my husband if I had a brain bleed or not. They were looking for other signs because they couldn't do an MRI. So they were just hoping that the brain swelling went down. And, and you know, I, I joke about it because my, fam- my family and friends all joked about it that, oh, if she's taking the, there was a point where Susie, our principal clarinet in the symphony, had told Arish um, kind of an update. And when she told Arish, yeah, she's, you know, she's moving around so much they won't let her give it you know, an MRI and, She's, you know, she's somehow even unconscious getting out of the call or whatever. He's like, oh, yeah, she's in there. She's coming back. She's, she's fine. Um, so there's a joke about that, but it is um, that kind of aggressive physical behavior is very classic of brain swelling. It's something that happens, you know, during that. So 
all joking aside, that's wild. I don't, I don't think I'm all that special. I think I did subscribe, you know, it corresponded to, you know, you know science and all, because you know, science. Um, sure. But it must be really weird to hear, I mean, you know, to hear about yourself doing these things and you had no idea. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I don't even remember waking up the morning of the accident. I shit you not. Wait, can I say that on this podcast? Is yes. Like PG <laughs> um, yes. I'm around. I'm no drop bombs. Um, Definitely do it. I apologize if there are any sensitive listeners. It's just part of my vernacular. Uh, Same. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I shit you not. The night, the last memory I actually had before kind of waking up fuzzily the first time, because I woke up you know, obviously a bunch of different times after, after three days, um, was the last thought I had before I went to bed was I love my life. Literally last thought I remember having before I fell asleep. I fell asleep with a smile on my face. I just played a great, uh, marriage of Figaro show with an Irish and I had this great duet and it was just like, Oh my God, this is what I love doing. A friend was in the audience who went out and had some wine and some, you know, whatever, you know, that night. And, um, and so I just had this incredibly, I was like, my life is so together. I have this dream job. I have amazing friends. I'm actually getting to really live this incredible life. I had things to look forward to. I was supposed to be, I was actually on my way, um, you know, at that accident, I was on my way to volunteer for um, a veterans horse therapy group. So I was going out to a ranch to pet horses and groom horses all morning. You know, I mean, it's like, there was a lot of shit to look forward to. So... Yeah, so in terms of grief, I guess what I'll probably focus on in my story, because it was a big shock and a big surprise, um, is I think when we go through trauma, we are not always prepared for um, the grief of self, like the loss of self and the loss of identity um, when we experience a trauma. And I've had actually a few of that. I, I suffered an assault when I was in college by a boyfriend and did not deal with it for about six or seven years until my body just would not suppress it anymore. And the big, like I've, in the traumas that I've had, I just keep still being shocked by this loss of, this loss of control. And I think that's a huge part of grief, which is awful because you can't, Whatever it is you're missing, whoever it is you're missing, you can have all the rational thought on the planet. You can be super well adjusted. You can have all the therapy in the world. And there's not a damn thing that you can do to make yourself not want that person back, to not want that life back, to not want that part of yourself back. You just, you, that is a visceral feeling that you can't change. And that is what I think makes you feel like you're in that, that, tornado or that dark spiral or that that's I think the thing that feels so awful is that there's not much you can do for yourself when that moment hits how long you stay in that moment that I I think is is where our we can bring some control back in but in this accident I was you know I remember waking up um and, you know, just a few times in these like few kind of like, it's almost if you saw in a movie where you kind of, it's black opens up to kind of, oh, I see some things. And then you're like, oh, then it slowly fades. And then you wake up again. It's kind of like that. And apparently I woke up a lot of times and I wasn't remembering, you know, conversations that I was having. I am really shocked at how surprised I was or how I'm, I'm shocked at how quickly I just accepted though, everything that happened. 
So, because I think it's some, it's some part of my mind and body did remember maybe. And, you know, I just, and I didn't, I, I will say in the hospital, I didn't have a whole lot of moments of freaking out or anything. It was, okay, how do I get better? All right, boom. All right, I'm awake. Let's do this. Okay. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be able to play, you know, by a summer season. Okay. I, you know, I was like, where's my phone? And my phone was like, obviously a co complete mess. So I couldn't really you know, do anything, but all I wanted to Google was, okay, how do I get rid of, you know, the scar tissue on the lip? Um, Cause I ended up developing a mucus plug, which is very common. If you've had a big trauma and they do sutures, your body is also like grows around them. So I look like I was chewing tobacco, like, you know pop out like that so i can't play so i ended up having to get a plastic surgery later to um repair that and then there was the tooth you know this is a this is an implant this is a completely fake tooth um looks great <laughs> sometimes i do see because it's a different thickness than this one because they actually had to cap that one and that's actually a whole other level of grief the moment when we were I'd already had the implant surgery. We were six months into this process and an, an implant, a tooth implant, you're looking at a minimum of a year long um, process. And, and mine was a little bit more than that because they had to start me on some Invisalign because the trauma had shifted my teeth. Cause that clamped down apparently when I, you know, on impact when it was hit. And, you know, there was a point, I remember when he told me, he's like, you know, on the x-rays we saw a small crack in this tooth. And I just, it was completely irrational, but I completely lost it because that means he was going to, if you, if you do, a, if you do um, a crown or a, a cap, they, um, they have to shave down that tooth. They have to, so they were going to be taking away another part of me. And, and, it, and I remember saying to myself, you're being ridiculous because there, because there's a, there's that part of me that was like, why couldn't I have just lost a foot? I am not kidding you. That is how sick, <laughs> you know, musicians can go because my foot, I can't, I, I don't need my foot to do, do my job. Well, and it's, it's worth noting too, because I don't know if you said this yet or if I missed it, but Mary Beth plays uh horn. And so when, when you're a horn player, I mean, people obviously know you use your mouth, your teeth, your tongue, all everything in, that's on you. That's, that's in that area. You use that to play your instrument. And um, but Mary Beth also too. Mary Beth, you are um, one of our musicians who also like you're not you're not a contracted player. Like no, you're you are contracted. But I mean, like you're not supplemental. You come, you play every show. So you were in a position where. Like obviously you're you're depending on yourself, but you know you're you're part of the team. Like you're 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 one of the starters, quote unquote. You know. Yeah, I'm first string. Uh, <laughs> I'm first. Yeah, I'm I'm yeah, tenured contracted um, member in the orchestra, and, and you know it took me a long time to get that job. Um, I won it in 2015. I graduated college in 2002, and I've been taking auditions ever since then. Um, so it's a BFD is what you call it um, to win a full-time salaried orchestra job. And it's, you know, the joke is you'll pry my cold dead hands off of that chair. Like once I get it, you know? Mm. Um, and so it, I remember very much just all of my focus was how do I get back to playing? Because if I can get back to playing, I can get back to me. 
I'm, I'm very type A OCD, you know, Virgo all day long. And so for this accident to force me to stop everything and, and to possibly change things that I had cultivated that I loved in my life. Um, and, and, and not even just that I loved, but my identity is a, a musician and my voice is through the horn. Yes, I sing and play piano, but what's special is the horn. You know, that, that I, I got my degree in, you know, it's what I, I mean, it, it's hard to describe because I got that a lot from people and they were meaning well. They're like, well, no matter what, you, you, can, you still have piano, you can still sing. And I was like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't care. Um, this is, this is the thing that got, you know, it, it's hard to describe. It's, I, you know, it, it, and it doesn't, you know, for somebody that's lost an actual limb, it was very hard for me to have these feelings knowing, because I've, I've kind of been slightly part of that community too, because my sister has cerebral palsy. So um, I have been around people with special needs. I've grown up with them my whole life. And and people that, you know, a lot of people that Amory was going to therapy with had suffered, you know, trauma and, and lost limbs. And that insane amount of grief that happens when you lose a part of your body. And I'm like, and I don't think that in my, um, that every time I would have that thought of why couldn't it have been something else that, you know, some other part of my body that I lost, um, that I felt really a lot of shame and a lot of guilt because it, you know, somebody else was like, really a tooth? And you, you know, you care. I mean, because it is, it, it may be significant to me, but in terms of recovery, I knew very much that the complications I was going to deal with were going to be far less than somebody that was losing an actual limb and what that is. So, sure, but it doesn't take away from what happened. I mean, you literally lived your worst nightmare. That's what it was. No, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's exactly that's exactly what it was. It, the only thing that would be worse is if I lost my hearing. You know, I mean, that's, um, and I, I, I remember times where, you know, I would, part of my <laughs> thing I hated the most is like, oh, I would be able to like, you just need to rest. You need to rest. And I was like, Kiss my ass. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I want to talk about too is because um, there was this grieving process for you, but also, I mean, to an extent, this spills into your life, especially I, I'm kind of curious um, how your husband was able to process that. I, I, I've met your husband a couple times, but, um, and he's, he's a super nice guy, but I, I mean, was, how how was that the dynamic changed i guess or supported through the accident obviously he was there for you but i mean obviously you're you're a strong personality and i'm curious as how that that healing process and that grieving process um affected that part of your life well i'll, I'll talk about a very specific moment where i think he was very frustrated that i didn't seem to be i say it was much worse for my family um, my daughter missed her prom because it happened on the day of her prom. Um, oh, goodness. Wow. Wow. Like, what a day. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, that's something that, that kind of stuck with me and, and you know, definitely affected her. It was really, really traumatic for her. She has still trouble driving by 
the hospital in Midland, if she's ever there, it's very triggering for her. Um, my husband, I don't think he slept, you know, for a few days. And I, I wake up, I want to call dentists. I want to hit the ground running. And he was pissed because he just spent the last three days not knowing if I'm even going to exist anymore. And I just breeze right on past that to go mode and let's fix this. That is who I am. And it was important for me to retain that, to still feel like me because everything else had been so much, you know, so much other had been taken away and so much was up in the air that for me, trying to get him to understand that this taking these small steps to me, it seemed very small of getting the process of recovery started was what allowed me to rest and relax. But I, it was very hard for me to see, or at least I could maybe see it, but I couldn't feel it from his perspective of, you have got to give me this. You have got to give me just being able to look at you and talk to you and know that you actually are still going to be around, that you're still going to be here. And I hadn't cried or freaked out or anything. And I wasn't, you know, I was just like, okay, you know, let's do, you know, I was in, you know in my go mode. And I just remember being like, Oh, I feel so gross. I just really, really want to shower. I really want to shower. And I was already able to get up and walk around, you know, and, um, they didn't confine me into the collar anymore. Once I started, um, waking up cause it was just so uncomfortable. Um, and Carrie was like, okay, I'll, I'll, you know, we'd asked the nurse and they said, yes, we can give you a shower. And so he took me into the bathroom and there was a mirror there. And I remember the moment that he took my gown off and I could see in the mirror and I just was covered. My body was like black, black and purple. And that, I think, I mean, of course, that's when I just kind of broke down and he just kind of started shaking and he was just so, you know, gently just giving, it was a really sweet, incredible thing, giving me this bath and he was crying too. And it was the first time I think he needed me to see that. And he had given me, and there was, <laughs> there was actually another point too, where, um, he got so mad because I hadn't seen myself yet. I just was kind of like, you know, I want to do this. I want to do this. And he just like, Oh my God. And he brought a mirror and just put it up to my face. And that's the first time I saw my lip, the tooth gone, like the, you know, like I had measles because of all the, you know, the glass that, you know, shards of glass that broke in my face. And, um, and, and so he needed, it, it was, it was interesting how I had to balance my um, grief with his, he needed something different for his grief than I needed for mine. Um, he needed me to move slowly because I think he needed to see how seriously I took it. So it's like, I wouldn't get hurt again, or we still have, you know, to be honest, we still haven't unpacked all of that fully because he was unemployed at the time, which ended up being a blessing because he could take care of me. But you know, the stress of him trying to find another job while this was going on. And, um, we, we were definitely very close during that time, which was really incredible. And, and you can, yeah, I am so independent and really, really strong. I'm, you know, I, 
it was really nice for him to take care of me. Sometimes I wanted to take him to take care of me more. And he really did. This is wildly profound. Um, I think this is the first time we're hearing this perspective of, you know, you recognizing that there is grief involved on the other side as well. Um, like it's very compassionate and very, like I said, profound <laughs> um, because, you know, it wasn't just your grief, you know, it's, it's, there's somebody else there and, and that perspective. Cause you know, I get that like a practical, like, you know, well, what's next to get back to where I was, you know, I went to bed thinking I love my life and now I've, this is derailing that. And how, like, you know, you want to just get back to that point, you know, as quickly as possible, but sometimes there's beauty, you know, like, I mean, I just, like, I find this very beautiful um, in that you guys found that connection and, you know, it was a different, it was something that you would never have planned in your relationship, but it brought you guys closer. And <laughs> it, it did. I, I remember when I got home, Oh, it was so nice to, you know, be in my own bed. And, and I really did start to feel like, Oh, okay. I can kind of, now I can kind of rest. He was very mad. I was called, I, my friend Susie was driving me home from the, Susie was mad too, driving me home from the hospital. Cause I actually was able to walk out of the hospital five days later. And uh, <laughs> I immediately started calling dentists on the ride home. And the way she does the impression of me doing it is, um, yes, here's my situation. Um, how soon can I get in? And they're like, oh, it's nothing. Okay, bye. Until <laughs> <laughs> I found, and I found my amazing dentist, but he was like the third or fourth person that I called because my, my, my personal dentist couldn't get me in for like six weeks. And it was all I could do not to be like, F you. You know, I was just like, okay, bye. <laughs> um, and th this other dentist could get me in the next day. And at that point, I could just exhale. It's like somebody's going to be in the driver's seat now helping fix this for me. And, um, and he was mad. Susie was really mad because it was kind of, I couldn't see it at the time because like what you're talking about this, you know, this grief for understanding other people's grief around you. It is an interesting exercise and I would consider it an exercise because do I get to explore and experience and, 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 and take care of my grief the way I need to. And I want to absolutely hell. Yes, I do. I need to be able to do whatever I need to do. They also do too. Cause it's their grief. Okay. So now when it comes to navigating a relationship, and I think this is really applicable to almost all the different levels of relationships that you go through. We all get to have our own feelings and we all um, need to do, deserve to get to do what it is we need to do to be healthy and to thrive. However, the reality of life when, unless you want to be a hermit in the woods and not develop relationships with anyone ever, if you are going to receive all the benefits, the great parts about being in a relationship, you do have to be prepared to figure out with each other, how do I take care of myself in the way that I need to? And is there a way that I can do that that doesn't compromise you in the process? That also, is there a way that we, how do we do this together so that we're each getting what we need, but, and we're not triggering the other person. 
And part of it for me was, okay, what's going to make you feel like I'm taking my recovery and rest seriously for you? Because for me, I'm taking it seriously by getting into a dentist and getting that, you know, finding a plastic surgeon, doing what, you know, like researching scar tissue. This, these are things that, you know, we're going to, you know, mentally help me um, and to physically relax. Healing up here will help the physical relax. And my husband needed to know that I wasn't trying to rush through something and that I wasn't going to hurt myself more by, so I was like, okay, I won't walk down the stairs without you. I will not vacuum for a month. Because I'm a bit of a clean freak. So, yeah, sometimes that is uh, that control is <laughs> hard to let go of in healing. <laughs> to clean feels like me. So, you know, I had to have, um, so we just kind of, we, it, it wasn't an obvious contract, but just in talking with each other, we came up with, okay, what can you live, what can you live with and what can I live with? And then ultimately, I don't think we really ended up having to compromise our own needs that much um, in order to do that. But I think when you love somebody, you have a choice. And you, I think the same thing when you love yourself, because the most important relationship you're ever going to have is with yourself. I think we can make choices out of love for the relationships that we have, the, the, whether it be ourselves or other people. Um, and if we choose to make decisions out of love, that means it's not going to be mathematically even. You just have a choice. You can make a choice out of love or you can make a different choice. And sometimes that choice out of love is um, love for yourself first. Um, but you can, you know, heart's really big, right? We can love, you know, we can, we can kind of spread that love around. And so I just, that was my barometer for decisions that I made in that time is that, um, am I making a choice out of love or fear? I think sometimes we make a lot of choices out of fear and grief and trauma can really trap us in that place. Um, I was very afraid that if I, if all of this did heal and I got, you know, and I'm able to get a tooth back, what is, am I going to have to completely relearn my instrument right from the very beginning? Because if I had to do that, I probably wouldn't be able to have a symphony job again. It took me, you know, 30 damn years to, you know, 35 to get, you know, to the place that I was. Am I really, you know, is that what it's going to be like? Did I lose all of that technique that I cultivated? And I remember sitting in my driveway, looking at the kind of this beautiful sunset and just being, having this really honest moment with myself where, you know, I should be able to enjoy this. This is beautiful. This is the kind of stuff that really matters. And then honestly, after that, I said, fuck that. If I can't play my job again, if I can't play my horn again, at least as well, if not better, I'm going to need to be so medicated. I just, I, I was just this very real moment of, I have two paths. I can either do whatever it takes to try to get this back. And then I'll know when it's time to call, you know, throw in the towel if it's not working. Um, and then just know that I'm going to need to be medicated and be in therapy probably for the rest of my life. Um, and I would probably, you know, I'd probably figure it out, but I was just kind of in that moment. I'm like, Nope, I'm not the person that can sit back and just be like, well, the sunset is what really matters. I'm like, bullshit. No, 
I, I want this and I can't, I can't give it up. And it was a constant over that entire next year and going back to the orchestra and playing again, it was a constant exercise in managing frustration and absolutely just overwhelming panicking fear. Did, did you, um, did you pursue any sort of therapy or anything for yourself um, after, after the accident? Yes. Um, I was recommended into um, at first speech therapy because it's actually um, after you've had a traumatic brain injury, which is what I um, had, was still having memory issues. And so um, I worked with a speech therapist um, who specializes in neurological trauma um, and so we did, you know, actually a lot of card games and things like that. And I improved really, really well. It was, it was, it was, it was good work, but she kind of felt, I it was telling her, I was like, you know, I'm kind of dealing with these other things because chemically I wasn't actually able to feel, which is a really bizarre, disturbing thing. Um, you are very intellectually aware of things that you enjoy and people that you love and enjoy. And you are not just, you're just not fully able to participate you feel like you're this ghost on the outside. Like you can't, and I ended up not wanting to be around people because I couldn't match their level of interaction or energy or, um, you know, emotional engagement and reaction to things. I just kind of felt like it was just really strange. You, you do just feel like a ghost kind of floating outside of your body and just observing things, but not actually. And so even things that I enjoyed I could, I intellectually knew this is an enjoyable thing and I really could not feel it in my body at all. It, it was, it's like, imagine having no taste, but in an emotional sense. Um, so she referred me to the, a trauma therapist. It's a great, um, oh God, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's a great, just full on neurological center in Midland. And they do physical things. It's like all one, one-stop shop. They have a uh, neuropsychologist. They have um, occupational physical therapists, um, massage therapists, speech therapists. I mean, so it's like whatever. You so it was a great, it was a really, really great, um, great place. And uh, I went and saw a, a trauma therapist there. And I'm interesting in therapy because I already understand. I've been through therapy before and I also really understand myself and I'm very analytical anyway. So we, I mean, she would kind of say like, <laughs> you know, let me know if you feel like this isn't, you know, helpful anymore. But what she would do is she would just say, um, she would kind of ask very interesting. She would, she would ask kind of one question, pretty much the whole, you know, each, each session was just one question. Um, and it usually was, is that very, is that necessary for happiness? Is that a requirement? You know, and what we realized that we had to do for me because I was such a doer that I had to figure out a new, a new, um, okay, so this is actually part of the, um, the brain trauma. I, I can't, I think, oh, it's so funny. I think in um, SAT words, I don't, is what I call them. I, I sometimes have uh, word recognition issues finding kind of the basic word for something. So what I wanted is that like, so I had to find a new barometer, which is kind of 
uh, a new uh, rubric. I'm like, these are not, you know, regular words. And um, the, a new um, measure, measure. Yeah, a new way to measure or quantify or assess. Uh, you know, how do you judge? Oh, gee, a simple word would be judge. How do you like <laughs> judge a new day? Um, a good day, um, because for me before it was always based off of my productivity. And I remember one day she asked me, um, what about being, you know, what about all of, like, why do you feel like you need to do all of this in order for a day to be good? And, and then I started to kind of realize how many things were kind of tied into, um, how my happiness was tied into shame. And I actually had quite a bit of shame still from the accident because um, the accident was my fault. I um, was told I ran a stop sign. And so there was a lot of like a stop sign I didn't even see. And so then there was this journey of accepting, like, you know, which is bizarre because it's a road I was familiar with. I was fully rested. There was a text, mes text message still on my phone from earlier in the morning where I said, hey, um, can I sleep in a little bit? You know, what time do you guys need me? And they're like, oh, no, just get it. You know, I'll get here whenever. You know, it's, it's not a big deal. So I wasn't in a hurry. I got plenty of sleep. But I wasn't tired. It was a sunny day. Um, they found my phone in the glove box, which is normally where I put it. So, like, I wasn't on, you know, I wasn't texting and driving. I was, and it's a road that I was familiar with. And I even drove back to um, the site, you know, some months later. There are no trees around the stop sign. There are rumble strips before the stop sign. Like, there's literally, so that tells me, so I'm, I'm not only dealing with, okay, this is my fault. Um, I've hurt myself and everybody in my family um, and my friends. Um, I've literally ruined everything. And yet there was, there, I don't know what else I could have done to have seen this stop sign. Right. There's no, what, you know, there's not, there's nothing for me. So I'm, you know, because that, that's my instinct too. Is okay if I make a mistake, how do I make sure that never happens again? Well, there was nothing about any of that that you see what I mean. Like it's like so, it wasn't. I mean, it had to have been completely meant to happen in a certain way. If there's no way I, there were no mistakes that I was making. Right? There were no. There was no. Um, I wasn't, I, you know, I was wearing my seatbelt. I mean, there was, I wasn't speeding. There was, because I usually just set my cruise control on. And so I'm like, what do you, what do you, how do I, what could I have done to have seen that stop sign that I wasn't already doing? Maybe you sneezed. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I have, I have, no idea. I have no idea. And, and, and so this idea of productivity, which is my kind of natural you know, place, but I couldn't do that because physically I was, was tired more. I'm supposed to be resting. What am I going to do with my days? I can't practice my horn. Um, you know, and I had to wait for this plastic surgery. I had to wait a certain amount of time before the tissue was healthy enough to, to, to do the surgery. And so she was really good at, you know, once we got to the shame part of it, we're like, okay, we're going to, let's unpack that, shall we? And then figuring out a new way to help me heal without um, needing to produce something out of it. Even, even you know, like a, a, a successful day. So we kind of, to help, <laughs> successful days if I completed three things. One of those things could be taking a shower. 
One of those things could be like once I was allowed to vacuum, okay, you know, I'll clean up the house a little bit. Um, making a nice meal, um, you know, that is considered would be a productive thing. If I do these three things, I can sit back. And it's like I had to kind of find a way to give myself permission to feed that part of myself that likes being productive without getting in the way of my physical healing. So at some point, <laughs> one of my favorite moments is I would turn the sprinkler on in the morning, drink my coffee and watch my dogs in the yard, like, you know, go to the, go potty, whatever. And I would just spend an hour watching the sprinkler go back and forth in the morning for like 20, 30 minutes. And then at night I would have a gin and tonic, watch the sprinkler again after I fed the dogs because I'm like, I'm watering the grass. That is something. So a lot of these coping, these types of coping mechanisms um, have come in handy during COVID because I very much went back to that place of, okay, so I don't have a concert <laughs> to keep me in this feeling of um, viability is I think a really great word. Um, there's a vibrancy that we've all lost in, in COVID because we're not um, out in the world doing the things that we feel are like identify us. So the sense of loss, I think a lot of people are feeling that they don't really know how to explain or put words to is that loss of vibrancy, relevancy, um, because you're not able to do the same activities in the same way. And any of those activities that you do, because you're not doing them out in the world where there's a schedule and other people that you are um, 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 responsible to, accountable to, you have to use a lot of damn willpower in order to do it. So I got very, very in touch with my willpower um, through that entire time. My willpower for doing things, my willpower for not doing things if I shouldn't do them, um, and my willpower to not go down the rabbit hole that I call it, um, the rabbit hole of negative thought spiral and fear. Um, sometimes I would have to just say things like, I only have to hang on for this one more minute and then, and then I might feel differently. Okay. I can do another minute and I might feel differently. Okay. I can do another minute. <laughs> I love this. I love that you're sharing these coping mechanisms, um, and ideas. I mean, this is, you hit the nail on the head when you said, um, that we've lost our you know, sense of, of vibrancy. <laughs> and uh, it's not something I've, I've ever really thought about before. Um, you know, I've definitely can identify and I know Corey probably feels the same way, you know, with um, feeling like I've, I've lost so much <laughs> during this. Um, but reframing uh, and the way you've reframed is so is so true um you know the the thought of um accepting the things that i can't do you know i think that's that's one of the hardest things is to accept that but in accepting it you are doing yourself a great service you know <laughs> trying to and it has different it has different layers of it um i remember i felt 
you know, something I had to battle all the time because I'm someone that, man, you know, I, I was so busy all the time before, you know, this accident and vibrancy, right? Like my energy was like, boom, 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 you know, and I, and there was a new project and this and this and, um, and I, but I would always be like, oh man, because I always do, I love doing um, YouTube painting tutorials. So I was like, oh man, I'd love to have time to do that more, you know, and, or, oh, song, I got into songwriting in my master's degree because I took a, a weekend workshop and I'm like, whoa, I can actually do this. Cool. Right. So I had all of this time after this accident for creative projects. I was a zombie. I couldn't do anything. And, you know, and they always say like, oh, the songwriters or, you know, creative people or whatever. They're like, yeah, I had this traumatic thing happen and all this stuff came from that. I was like, already nothing. <laughs> there was just nothing wanting to come out of me. And I, I remember having, because um, I was actually managing Airbnb out of our basement at this time. My husband had gotten a job in Grand Rapids. So I spent most of the summer, he was with me for about a month after the accident. And then he got a job. And so he was only with me for like a day on the weekends because he was working um, third shift in the middle of the night too. So he was sleeping all the time when he would come home. So I was like on my, I was alone like a lot. And um, a, one of our first Airbnb guests we ever had was like a long-term guest. She was coming to visit and just hang out and have dinner. She's become a really great friend. Um, and I was saying to her, I was like, yeah, I feel like I should have, I keep thinking I've wasted so much time in, in, in not creating something out of this whole thing. And she goes, I said, with all this time off I have, and she goes, uh, it's not time off, you're healing. And I just kind of sat there like, huh, this is, this is in like damn August or September, by the way, the accident was in May. And I'm just now getting to be like, huh. Oh, <laughs> this was required. So it's not time off. Oh, cool. Well, shit. <laughs> you know, and and I, I think that's a really I, that's a big thing I've had to accept too. In in especially with COVID, is that I I've gone through stretches where I felt kind of inspired, and then I just kind of something just kind of came out, and then I would feel like this obligation. That's a big thing I think sometimes about we, we don't, we underestimate in grief that surprises us. We expect the loneliness, the sadness, the, the longing, the sorrow, which is such a beautiful expression of love when you think, when you think about it. Joy and sorrow are two sides of the same coin. Um, you don't get either one unless you have really true, deep and, and abiding love. Um, and so both are really you know, beautiful in those expressions, but man, what's really surprising is just this sense of, um, sense of obligation to what you think you're supposed to be doing, what you think you're supposed to be feeling, obligation to the people around you, what you think they want of you. Um, and that's, that's sneaky, right? Like you don't, you don't, you're not expecting that, especially when people, so I've, I've been working on what I thought was a blog and it turned out as kind of more of a book. And so I'm still trying to figure out how I want to organize this. Uh, but writing about this whole experience for me, not just from a musician standpoint, I want kind of three separate sections on my website that people can use as like a, a trauma encyclopedia, if you will, where I write about um, 
very detailed all the different levels of trauma and the things that I did with my trauma therapist and just talking about trauma from a very shame-free perspective. Like, yeah. And then another section is about just oral factual issues. Like, here's what my lip surgery was. This is why I needed it. This is what I did to treat the scar tissue. This is... A, you know, implant versus bridge if this happens to you from not from a musician from a brass player wind player standpoint to and then the other is how did I get back to playing again what what did that look like for me because I think there's a lot of a lot of the things that I've seen out there about all three of these things is very um it just did not first of all it seemed kind of like a rocky montage right? Like a great workout montage where it's like, and all of a sudden they're back, you know? And I'm like, no, this is not how this shit looks. This shit is messy and awkward and clumsy and not a, a rocky workout montage. It's, it's so not. And, um, and, 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 and all three of those levels. And I re remember feeling things and reacting to things in a way that I felt shame and embarrassment about that I don't think I had to find just my own path and my own journey in this. And so by sharing what I want to share my story with this so that not so that people can use it as I should feel or shouldn't feel this way, but as permission to feel however the hell you're, you're feeling and do what you need to do to honor you as much as you can. Um, because in terms of the trauma, I, when people would say, a phrase that I hated, even though I knew where this, these people were coming from and they were being encouraging. And, and then it would feel so guilty because I did not, I, I hated it when people would say this. If anybody can get through this, you can. It just felt icky whenever I would hear that. And I would kind of instantly get a little pissed and then feel really guilty because these are people I love and they were trying to be encouraging. And they would be mortified if they knew that they'd like screwed up by saying something like that saying something that made me mad, but it's not something you can control, right? And then I was like, okay, gotta unpack that. Uh, why does that make me feel that way? Um, or um, uh, you're so, you know, like, you know, about talking about how strong, so strong I am, or then later on people would talk about, oh my God, you're so inspiring. And I was like, whoa, whoa, no. Um, I am, there are plenty of times I felt weak as hell because getting back to playing, I don't think was the as, the, as fast as I did was a healthy thing. And I did things that I know were not healthy because I needed to keep my sanity. There were choices I had to make sometimes um, where I need to do this because otherwise, like, I was compelled to. So I think sometimes what's stronger is to hold yourself back because you know, it's the, you know, doing the harder thing because it's the right thing I think is really strong and is really, um, is really inspiring. And I don't think I really did that very often. I'm glad you're saying this though. I'm really glad you're saying this because, um, I think a lot of people, especially the ones that come off as the strongest and the ones that people are always saying, you know, you're so strong, you can do this. Like, you know, you, you're stronger than I am and things like that. We hear that so much that we do internalize it. We do feel like, oh, I can't stop even if I want to, or it's a, you know, this is something I have to do to prove whatever this is, but it's not our own internal dialogue. You know, this is an external dialogue that people have created for us. So what if there is complete nerve damage and I won't be able to make my lip function? You cannot fix nerve damage. 
you cannot. And, um, you know, so that was, a, so when people would say that, I'd be like, yeah, unless it's completely jacked and will not heal. Like it's not a, I think, I think in the moment it felt flippant, right. You know, it felt like just, I'm like, well, yeah, I could also turn myself around in knots and, <laughs> you know, and, and, and nothing will come from it. And I could like, you know, make myself more crazy by doing it. Um, another one that, you know, that I slightly mentioned earlier, oh, well, you have piano. Well, you, you have this other thing. And I'm like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to be grateful for stuff, but could you not? Um, Sometimes we just want somebody to listen and not to fix. Um, I read something recently and, you know, I'm definitely that kind of fixer person. Like somebody I love is upset. I want to do everything I can to fix it. Um, my boyfriend has told me, stop baby birding me. Um, you know, he like, he goes, something, you know, everything doesn't need something, you know? Um, like he cuts his hand and I'm like, oh, do you want to put ointment on it? It's like, it's fine. It's fine. And so I have like been able to step back and go, oh, <laughs> you know, and, and I think sending this message to people of it's okay to not have a solution for the person you care about because they went through something bad. We really just want you to, to listen. And that's like invaluable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, just, and sometimes, and I, 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 I with growing up with people with special needs, um, I would hear this from people a lot. Well, I don't know what to say to somebody that is disabled. And I was like, well, first of all, you kind of just, you wouldn't, you don't necessarily need to treat them any differently. Just kind of, it, it's just taking a little moment to kind of put yourself in their shoes. And I think with somebody going through grief, keeping it simple is really, really good. I. I find that I didn't really need much from, from people because again, I'm such a doer. So I was kind of like wanting to, I, I was pretty antisocial actually. I kind of just wanted to keep my head like moving forward, like the horse with blinders on, like, boom, let's keep me on the track. And I want to come out <laughs> at the end. When I'm, when I'm going through something, I'm not actually the friend that will call and talk to you to try to work through it. I'm working through it. And then I'll tell you about it when I figured it all out and I'm good. That's more of the type of person I am. So I think that's a part of the reason why I was triggered by condolence messages and encouragement and stuff like that. I loved humor. I loved something taking me out of it. Um, I, Cause I didn't want to be reminded of it all the time. So sometimes when I hadn't seen, so I kind of hated seeing new people that I hadn't seen for a while that hadn't been up on everything, but they'd heard about the accent. Then I'd have to like go through the whole thing. So my therapist, my trauma therapist actually was like, okay, well let's, let's, let's figure out something you can say to redirect people in a way that you're honoring their kindness, but put, you're putting yourself in a safe space. So, and they'd be like, Oh my God, how are you doing? And I'm like, well, you know, it's complicated, but tell me more about you. <laughs> I just would say it's complicated because I'm not the type of person that can say, Oh, I'm great. You know, like I'm not that I'm not that I'm not the one. You ask me how I'm doing in the hallway, you best be prepared for like a 10 minute conversation because I like you know what's going on. And so I found these phrases like, you know, it's one of those things, it's just it's really complicated, but you know, but hey, what's been going on with you? 
you know, just redirecting it back, that was great because I just, if I'm going to take a yoga class, I don't want to rehash everything like the whole, you know, but yeah, I would imagine, and you know, and I've, I've lost people and I, I appreciate this. I, I assume that people care. Frankly, for me, I assume people care. So if I've lost somebody, unless you're my super duper close friend and you're coming over to the house to like make me get out of my pajamas because I can't, you know, I'm so deep in my grief, I can't function. And you're going to like make me soup and clean my house for me kind of deal. Like, and I'm going to, you're going to see me ugly cry on the bathroom floor. Unless you're that friend. If I'm seeing you in public, I, you know, let's just talk about life. I need a break. I think sometimes we need a break from our grief and we need permission to have that break. We need a permission. We need per permission to let go of that grief for just a little bit. That becomes the grief that becomes almost like comfort because it proves how much you loved that person or you loved that thing that you, that you lost. So I, as you know, as we discover from my personality, I have to give myself permission <laughs> to, to do certain things because I have this kind of like, you know, you know, protocol that I have to check off. And so I, I liked it when people would, you know, when I could redirect and we wouldn't have to talk about all that stuff. And other times too, where I, I, I like just being validated of like, man, that sucks. You want a glass of wine? Yes, that's exactly what um, I don't remember where I heard it or what I was reading about, but it was exactly that of like, you just want somebody to say, yeah, that really sucks. Girl, you were in it. You were in the weeds. And that's it. Chocolate. <laughs> it really sucks. <laughs> Bourbon. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, um, if you could describe grief um, in a statement of grief is, how would you... Yeah, what would you say grief is? Grief is an existence that we move through that becomes a new layer to our skin. It's like it's a new layer to our onion that we move through it and with it. And it reframes our lives. It reframes, it changes the lens. It, it shifts the lens that we're viewing the world through. And it is this, this, I think, I feel like grief um, is a living thing that ends up sim like in a symbiotic way lives with us. And I think, and, and, and so I think we, we, it, it, it shapes our decisions. It's, it shapes our choices and, and grief is, something that can feel awful and beautiful at the same time. It can feel like, and I think, I think that's why sometimes it's so hard to let go of grief because we feel like if we let go of the grief, we let go of, we're letting go of that person, that place, that thing, that life, that whatever it is that we're, we're grieving, um, that it's like that, that if we, if we let go of the, the sorrow attached to that grief that somehow, you know, what we've lost becomes more final in some way. But I almost feel like grief being is, you know, I'm actually kind of looking outside to like the beautiful snow in, in this blanket. Um, and I'm actually just seeing, you know, the little spot where we buried um, our cat Lily recently, very, very sudden. And, and, and I'm just like, oh, 
you know, because you and I just been, Corey, you and I just been talking about grief. And I just, I think of anything that you can wrap yourself up in that can become, that can become both a heavy burden, but also a comfort. You don't move past grief. You don't, but you, you move through it and with it. And just, I think, except that it's a part of you so that the sadness when it comes is not, we're not as afraid of it because there's no way out of it. I just remember thinking that like, I can't not want my little, my little white fluff ball back. I just want to, you know, grab her belly again. And, and even just the, knowing that it's irrational to like have buried her in the backyard. And it's like, Oh, it's getting cold outside. Like I felt like, you know, like I don't want her to be cold. Like it's these little things that pop in, but I'm like, you know what? It's, it's, it's okay. G again, giving myself permission. It's okay to love this hard and to feel this sadness and just to kind of let it. So maybe even grief is like just this waterfall of, of love that just washes over you and makes you feel like you're drowning sometimes, <laughs> you know, you know, and it's to the point where you get all pruney. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good way of describing it. Um, if people are wondering, this story does have a happy ending to an extent. Um, because Mary Beth, I want you to talk about the first time you were back on stage, um, playing again, uh, after all this had been happening. I remember it was, you told me the story before, but I think it's a really beautiful story and I, I want Jamie to hear it too. So, um, so we were playing a piece. So I, I'd actually, I'd had my surgery the day before my implant surgery, the day before my birthday, um, looked like they had to cut my gums and pull them down over my teeth. Uh-huh. Um, and they inserted like bone up in there to like build it up. Um, otherwise it's too gray. It becomes really gray up there, but I had, they had to support the gum, pull them down. So I, I was just swollen and a mess, but, and, but I heal fast. And I had told Eris, it's like, and I made my dentist figure out like a temporary tooth solution so I could get back to playing. And so that was on September 5th. I got the temporary tooth like about two weeks after that. And then by October, beginning of October, I was playing with the symphony again, my first concert back. Stupid and crazy. I'm not, I'm not recommending that. Uh, again, that was a weak moment. I think on my part where I was just determined by sheer force of will, like I need this for my sanity and it must happen, whether it's a good thing or not. So the concert we were playing with Shahrazad, this is not a piece that has had any uh, like uh, significance for me ever before. Um, I, it was kind of, it's not the most exciting piece for the third horn to play. Um, but this being my first concert back, man, it, it's not, there's nothing like having something taken away from you to make you really and truly appreciate it. And I remember, you know, going out on stage and I was very, very focused, just very, very focused. I mean, just even going there from the first rehearsal, I had to kind of survive the gauntlet of everybody coming up and being like, and I'm like, I need to warm up. I need to warm up, you know, like stay focused, stay focused. And I mean, you know, I could have gone down the rabbit hole of panic during that concert many times because nothing was dependable. You know, you, you know, you have to be so precise, but I didn't go down the rabbit hole. I was like, just hold on one more minute. You can, you can make good choices and you can, you can stay in the game one more minute. And, um, the concert was finished and I just remember looking out, out in the audience 
and my lips started shaking. And I told Arish, I was like, Arish, I'm gonna ugly cry very soon. And he's like, you should. And my friend Susie, um, our principal clarinet, she'd actually just lost her mom like three or four weeks prior. And I, I just, she turned around, looked at me, I looked at her and we were both like, it was just tears streaming down our cheeks. And the second that Marcella walked off stage, she and I put our instruments down and just walk, walk, like went to each other. Cause we were like, she was you know right in front of me and just hugged and just shook and cried on stage for like 20 minutes. It just, it was, it was almost all gone. And there's not a time that I don't think about it and uh, get really emotional because it's music is not what I do. It's who I am. So it would have been like, losing myself and uh to see that to see you know to get to experience that you know you know we're missing it right now you know this thing that we move through this blanket i've got the blanket on you know i've got the i'm in the waterfall to a certain extent but you know knowing that it is still it will be coming back um i'm almost kind of grateful i've been prepared for the things that we've gone through, you know, right now, in that moment on stage, just seeing the audience jump up and, and clapping. I just, I, you know, I wish, I mean, it's, it's very rare, right? Like when I go to work, people clap for me. <laughs> like, it's a pretty experience, but in that moment, just the, the, the thought that was in my head was I didn't lose it all. That's huge. I didn't lose it all. Yeah. Well, it's so beautiful to, I, I, I'm like what you said um, about like you liken grief to love and the fact that we grieve so hard because of all the love we have for that thing. And like, that's just, you know, it's so, um, you know, inherent in, in, in what you're talking about. Like, you know, it's, it's so apparent is the word I'm looking for. See, I lose my words too. Um, you can be in my SAT club. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so, um, you know, thank you for sharing that because it's really, really beautiful. And like, um, I would love to see you perform, <laughs> you know, because I feel like, yeah, you can show all of your emotions through music too. And, um, but yeah, you didn't, you didn't lose it all at all. <laughs> and I, I, I think it's important to, even though, I mean, not, not everybody has the happy ending, right. After, you know, something like that. And then, you know, if we're talking about a person that we've lost, I would say the, you know, the, the symbolism of, that concert for me would be the first time that you're able to laugh again after losing somebody and that you're able to experience joy again, but the, but your love for the person hasn't changed. Your, the sorrow of losing them just has a different, it changes colors in a way, I think. And so I'm never, I'm never going to, I am not the same person that I was and I'm never going to be. I lost definitely three days of my life that I'll never get back. I lost events and things that summer I'll never get back. And there's just a part of me, my brain doesn't work the same. That is never coming back. 
Um, and, and I had to, in a lot of ways, I, I, I kind of had to let that person go. My playing is different. It's not, I don't, it's just different. It's not, I, you know, better or worse. It's just different. My, you know, I look at pictures. My smile is not exactly the same as it was. There's like different kind of shades and colors. It's not, it's not quite the same. And you just, you know, being able to let that go and then, you know, you acknowledge it, let it, let it go. But yet you still have the blanket. The grief blanket is still there and it's okay. It's okay. It's not on a, I, it's not something to be afraid of to have, uh, you know, that little bit of that weighted blanket with you all the time. I don't think, I don't think it's something to be afraid of because I think it, it can be that, that thing that reminds you to appreciate little snowflakes that are falling that when you've been through a trauma, when you've been through grief, you're, it takes far less to make you happy for you to appreciate things. Um, so I don't, I don't think it's, and I'm someone by the way, that when it comes to losing people, I'm the worst. I don't feel like I handle it. Well, I love really hard. And when I miss somebody, it just, I feel like my insides are being completely ripped out. So I'm, I'm, I want everybody out there listening, don't think for a second that I think I know anything about grief or that I handle grief in a graceful way at all. No, there's ugly cry on the bathroom floor, um, unhealthy, probably unhealthy behaviors, those sorts of things. Like. This is important, right? And, and I think this is a big reason why Corey and I wanted to do this because um, I definitely found that like, you know, in a lot of my losses, I felt the same way of like, I'm not doing this right. Or like, you know, like I should be in bed crying, but instead I was out, you know, doing something because that was my way of coping. And these were your ways of coping and Corey has his ways of coping. And, you know, we, we aren't, we aren't, you know, experts, but that's why this is so great because, you know, your perspective and, and anybody else we speak with it we want people to feel comforted in the fact that like whatever they're doing is, is the right thing for them, you know, and obviously we don't encourage, you know, <laughs> harmful behaviors, but you know, there are, everybody has a different way of grieving and, you know, I'm hoping that people can hear your story and identify and go, okay, yeah, that is how I handle things, but like, it's okay. <laughs> you know? Um, and I like how you also likened, grief to like a weighted blanket because weighted blankets provide comfort. And so, you know, we can find comfort in our grief as well. Doesn't all, all have to be sorrow. <laughs> I, 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 I was thinking about it, you know, cause my, my daughter suffers from anxiety and she loves weighted blankets. I also suffer from anxiety. I mean, I mean, a classically trained musician, of course I suffer from anxiety. Like what, you know, what, what, you know, like, hello, but the way to blanket, I also can get claustrophobic. And I think there's a point where you can feel like you're being strangled by your grief, you know, strangled by your grief and you need the permission to have a break from it. It doesn't mean that you love that person or that thing or whatever, any less do what you need to do to keep your sanity find your own healthy path. Mine tended to be like a 
you know, backtrack, like mine was a little Pac-Man-y. <laughs> my, 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 um, my path has kind of always been that way and, and, and messy and a lot of expletives. A lot of expletives. I mean, there was, there was honestly a point where I, I had been able to do something. It wasn't working in rehearsal and I'm back home practicing. And all of a sudden I just, and I got so mad. I shoved the mouthpiece hard into my lips, into my face. I was so pissed off. I just wanted, I was like, I'm just going to knock my teeth out. My, I mean, I was just that. And I just started screaming and crying. That doesn't sound well adjusted. That was not a healthy thing to do. Those moments happened. <laughs> like It was, I thought so like, and that's you know, what I was kind of telling people. If I'm going to write all of this down, you guys can read it. And if then you still think that it was inspiring, fine. But don't just look for, look at me on the outside and just assume that it's inspiring because you don't know the hot mess that that was during that time. So thank you for having me on to, <laughs> to, to share the um, the ratchet path that I. <laughs> Hey, we appreciate it. Like I said, it's real. It's it's vulnerable, and it's it's just it's it's who you are and what you've been through, and that's like all we could ask for. <laughs> well, Mary Beth, thank you for coming on the podcast today for telling the story. Um, I adore you. I, I you're getting a hug next time I see you, just so you know. Um, and then when Jamie comes and visits sometime, um, we're going to get her tickets to the symphony. Yeah, or, or when, you, when you guys come here, because it's warm here. There's no snow. Well, yeah, for sure. I do look forward to hopefully meeting you someday in person. <laughs> it's All been right. A well, um, until next time, everybody, uh, have a great day. We'll talk to you later. Bye.